I love the gospel. What good news for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Wow. Um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here with you. I've got a little injury to my eye, so I'm going to have to wear my Steve Ortigo glasses a little bit today. So, uh, y'all forgive me for that. Um, yesterday, God wanted my attention on a particular matter, so He poked me in the eye to get it, and He had it, and uh, I'm thankful for it. So, uh, I'm here today with a little bit of weakness in that, uh, and a little distraction. <clears throat> Didn't rest too well last night with it. Had to go over to the instant care, uh, urgent care, and get it looked at. And I've got a little tear on the surface of my eye, right where the pupil is, or just above it. So when I look through this eye right now, you're, it's like looking through water at you. So um, uh, if I just seem a little gimpy today, that's the deal. I, uh, I'm picking up where we left off last week, and a continuation of the week before. And I want to tell you that it's been challenging to prepare and it's been challenging to ready myself to come and share with you um, and in a couple of things have been happening kind of in the background with me uh, as a result of this some of what we've been preaching through God has been doing a work in my heart to increase my love for you and I like that uh, mostly um, the challenge to it is that with the increase of the sense of love that I have for you, the sense of responsibility increases with that. And so I'm driving here today, and I stayed home during Sunday school, and I'm thankful for Ed Sylvester to watch over this Sunday school class for me. Really thankful for my brother, but... I'm driving here this morning, and, and, and I'm just kind of talking to the Lord. Do you ever do that when you're driving? I think people think I'm crazy when they're beside me, but I've not been immune to being thought as crazy before. Uh, that's happened many times. So I'm talking to Jesus on the way here, and I said, you know, I'm really stressed out. Really stressed out. I don't know if I can do this. I'm completely dependent on you to help me walk through these things because they're very serious and they're very tender and they're very painful. They're also very dangerous. And so we're walking through these things together about the church and about this whole incident that's going on in 1 Corinthians. So let me just catch you up in case you weren't here the last two weeks with a very brief overview. And Robin, if you'll roll all the way up to the slide that starts with the number one, a recipe for disaster. When Landon read this morning that section from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's reading a real event that happened in the Corinthian church. And that real event was a very serious issue of sin. A person in the church had uh, entered into a relationship with his stepmom. Uh, it was either marital or cohabiting. Not, it's, it's not really clear at that point what's happening, but the word has is used there. 
This man has his father's wife, his stepmom. So he's in this relationship with her. And, and it's very ugly and very sinful. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them and he says, uh, this is a recipe for disaster. And uh, we walk through a dangerous actuality. That's uh, it's a real event. And, and uh, if you read First Corinthians chapter five, you see that he begins by saying it is actually reported. So what Paul's saying is, is I have a confirmed report that this is true. Um, probably Chloe's people that are mentioned in chapters one and two are probably the source of this. And uh, they're letting Paul know what's going on in the church. And the church has not disciplined this person. They've not confronted this person. In fact, um, number letter B, they've gotten into a deceptive attitude. And that deceptive attitude is, uh, it's cool. It's cool. It's all right. Uh, y'all, y'all just go on sinning like this. And we're just going to kind of pat you on the back because you're people of influence. And we don't want to disturb the church. And we don't want to disturb the the the, the kind of leadership that we have and we don't disturb the kind of the financial situation we're in and and if we deal with these people the way we ought to it'll kind of disturb everything and we don't really want to do that so we're just going to kind of say that we're loving them and and being gracious to them but we're going to leave that going on it's very deceptive we talked about that and then finally i mentioned the deadly action their deadly action was inaction they chose not to do anything other than embrace this couple in their sin and act like everything was okay we moved on in last week, we talked about the reason for directions in a recipe, um, and Paul's writing a recipe here for unleavened bread, and that's kind of the theme for these three weeks is unleavened bread and the recipe for it and how to make it without leaven. And so uh, the reason for the directions were threefold. Salvation of a human being. We talked about that. Why did we talk about that? Well, when a person is in willful and unrepentant sin, it is symptomatic of a lack or absence of true salvation. That's why Paul writes what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Landon read that too. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And so when a person is in a situation where they are practicing open, willful, unrepentant sin, that, that is symptomatic of being a lost person, a person separated from God. We're not talking about somebody losing their salvation. We're talking about evidence that they never had it. And that's what it looks like. This guy looks like, this gal look like they never were really Christians. Because they're doing such a very unchristian thing without any remorse or repentance. They're just moving on in their sin as if it's okay. And the church is applauding that. And so... The sanctification of the church is an issue, too, because God wants the church to be holy. And he uses the the in the recipe, he talks about leavening. And in this recipe, leavening is representative of sin and sin's power to sort of um, move about freely and infect the whole church, just like leaven moves about freely in the lump of dough when you mix it and ends up affecting the whole loaf and leavening the whole loaf. And rather than it being unleavened bread, it ends up being leavened bread. And he's kind of reflecting back on the Passover and the removal of leaven as a picture of the removal of sin at the personal level and at the corporate level. And then the third thing we talked about last week, properly celebrating our Savior. And we talked about how if we get together to celebrate Jesus on Sunday with willful sin in our midst, it's like... 
Um, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the local bar to celebrate uh, somebody being clean for 30 days. It's like uh, Narcotics Anonymous having their 90-day freedom meeting at a meth lab. Uh, there's, there's something dysfunctional and wrong in the picture. So if we gather to celebrate Jesus and in our midst is open willful sin and we're not confronting it and unleavening ourselves at the personal and corporate level, then it's ridiculous what Paul says. It's just ridiculous. And so we can't celebrate our Savior rightly or truly while we are embracing the very things He came to deliver us from. And so that's where we landed last week. And we parted with me sharing a very tearful and sorrowful story about my own life and my own journey. I could give you a hundred of stories like that because I'm such a knucklehead. And uh, by the grace of God, he's brought me where I am. And he reminded me yesterday of really not where I need to be. And so we're moving today to number three in your outline. And it gets a little touchy here. So join me there. A recipe for delight. Paul's going to say, okay, here's how the church ought to be functioning. He gave us how it was functioning in number one. He showed us in the second point I made why we ought to be functioning differently. And now he's going to say, here's how. And so that's kind of where we're going to go today. And um, I want you to to join me for a moment uh, in... 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's goal is the goal that I shared with you guys last week, and and that is to make is people were people. The is is presently sinning. The were is freed from sin, washed, regenerated, cleansed, and evidencing that they know Jesus. That's, That's the goal that Paul is working toward. And so he says in... Verse 9 of chapter 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now what Paul does here is he gives us what's called a catalog. A catalog is a list that has purpose. And that list is, a, is, a, is like a checklist, a checkup list that you and I need to grasp, that we need to wrap our minds around that list. It's a very serious list. It's not to be taken lightly. And basically he gives this list and he says These are all evidences of a lack of salvation at the personal level. If a person is engaging unrepentantly in these things, then it's evidence that they are not inheriting the kingdom of God. They're not Christians. And so he lays that list out and he says that list is a list that should give you sort of a checklist of things you need to be cleaning out. And so that first point under a recipe for delight is there needs to be a thorough thorough cleansing. A thorough cleansing. That means at the personal level, you have to dive into your heart and you have to see if any of these things are living there unrepentantly, unrepentedly unremorsedly. And if those things are there, then the alarms need to go off. 
I might not be a Christian if unrepentantly those things are dwelling in me and are a part of who and what I am today. It's not talking about what you were. He covers that. But what you are today. And he gives a serious list, and there's reasons behind that list, because these are things that God has spoken to Paul, and Paul has spoken to us and said, you better check on these. Because these are evidences of a lack of a true relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Listen to the list again. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. I need to mention something about that word real quick. It is the word from which we get pornography. So you could actually translate that pornographers. It's porneia. It's a Greek word that for some reason we softened the P and brought it over into English for some uses. And we leave the hard P for other uses. So we'll say pornography and fornication. It's the same word. It is any kind of activity outside of marriage that is of that nature. I'm trying to be understand there's children here. Okay. Um, he goes on and says, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. And that word was an early kind of uh, transvestism or transgenderism that was going on in that day. Uh, nor homosexuals, nor thieves nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. If you're in the is state of those things, it is evidentiary, it is a piece of evidence that you may not be a Christian. And so Paul brings it out and says, don't be deceived about this. This is not a, this is not play. This is serious. This is your eternity. And so Paul says there has to be a thorough cleansing. We have to come in at the personal level first. And deal with it in here, in our own hearts. But part of the reason we won't deal with it in the lives of somebody else is because it's present in us. Or part of the reason that we'll do so harshly with somebody else is to cover that it's in us. Legalistic people are typically covering for something that's wrong in their own heart. I've seen that so many times. Why well, I really get up uncomfortable with legalistic churches. Because it makes a good cover. But also, libertine people are the same way. They don't want to confront somebody because it may expose something in their own heart. And they're kind of practicing that, don't really want that to come out in the open. So the, the motive in libertinism and, and, and legalism is kind of the same thing. It's a, it's a cover for our own sin. So let's not fool with it because it may out me. And so we... A little scared of the cleansing. Now, if something happens here, and, and I, I'm, I really want to camp on it a minute, and I may use too much time, and then next week we'll pick up the rest of it. But what happened when Paul wrote this letter needs to be understood. Um, help me out, Robin. Go, go to the next slide. There's really four Corinthian letters. Did y'all know that? A few of you knew that. There's four Corinthian letters. We only have two of them. But I want to tell you about all four because all four of them matter in understanding how this church responded to this, what Paul was saying to them. 
There's first letter that we'll call pre-first Corinthians. You can make a little note on your outline for this. Paul references that letter in 1 Corinthians in five, chapter 5 when he says, In the letter I wrote you, I told you, don't associate with immoral people. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So he's referring to pre-1st Corinthians, the letter that went before 1st Corinthians. Paul sent them a letter, and he had some things that they were supposed to do, and they didn't obey, so he writes 1st Corinthians to try to help them over the hump so they can obey. So the second letter is 1st Corinthians. And so it's referencing the previous letter. Well, when he writes 1st Corinthians, he calls them out and says, you need to discipline this guy, you need to put him out of the church. Well, something happens after that. Go ahead. He goes and he visits the church. And they utterly reject Paul. He records this in 2 Corinthians 13. He goes to the church to try to straighten this mess out. And the church rejects the Apostle Paul and sends him packing. Don't you think that through? Now, I want you to follow now why I'm raising that issue. When we as a church or when you as an individual confront a person about their sin, it will become personal. I just want to warn you. I wish there was a way around it. I wish there was a trick to not let that happen. But it will become personal. When you make the confrontation, you will be the lightning rod. And it will, at that point, get personal. That's what happened with Paul. It got personal. And so what happened after he wrote 1 Corinthians and then he went and wrote, made that visit, he's got two letters to them. They're not obeying what they should be doing with this sinful person. Rather, they're boasting and embracing this person because they're either a person of means or influence or importance or something like that. And so they're, they're not willing to rattle the cage or shake the, the rock the boat. And, and so they're, they're just embracing. And Paul goes back and they said, look, dude, we don't want you anymore. They started questioning his apostleship. Now, it's at this point I need to introduce you to something that's in the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to make a note here of how important this is. When Paul came and it had been made personal, here's what had happened. The immoral people had teamed up with a group of what are called revilers. King James sometimes calls them railers. They had teamed up together. You see, lurking in every church are unhappy people. And they're looking for an opportunity to attack someone. They're just fundamentally deep in their soul, not happy with Jesus, not happy with something, and they are called revilers. And here's what they do. They spend their time Attacking people in the church. And so here's what happened. The immoral people turned against Paul and it gave the revilers a platform. So they joined forces with the immoral people and the revilers and the immoral people got together. And here's what they did. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Here's what they did. Watch this. Think this through. Because it is just as deadly to a church to embrace open sexual deviancy as it is to embrace reviling behavior and the attacking of each other. It's just as deadly. And so the Apostle Paul in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians tells about these guys and gals. Look at what he says in verse uh, 8 of chapter 10. He says, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for the building you up and not destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they, who's they? They are the revilers. They're the people sitting around in small groups talking about people in the church and tearing them down. I want to tell you, it's death to a church. And so what they did is they started picking on things about Paul that they didn't like. And so they listed them publicly in their little meetings. And here's what they said. Verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Basically, they said he dresses like a country boy and he talks like a country boy. And who are we to be under the influence of somebody with such weakness? And so what they did is they zeroed in, reviling him, and this is a dangerous, poisonous kind of activity in a church. And if you find yourself sitting in a little group, picking somebody apart, you are a reviler. And you need to repent as much as the person who is engaged in the sexual deviancy. Because you are just as harmful to the congregation and that's why Paul put you in this list. Because it is evidence that you are not a Christian. That's scary. And so Paul, after the rejected visit, writes another letter that we might call 3 Corinthians, and he describes it as the tearful letter. Now, lest you think that this reviling is just kind of a little thing, I want you to go back to John the Baptist's life. Y'all remember John the Baptist? Remember that? Remember him? Who remembers John the Baptist? Okay. What did John the Baptist get in trouble for? Well, he went to one of the leaders who had taken an in-law as a spouse. And he said to that leader, it is not right for you to marry your in-law. That's a sin. It's adulterous and it's shameful. And you shouldn't do that. And he called him out privately and he called him out publicly. Well, it got nasty and it got personal, just like it did with Paul. And they began to revile him. And so they threw John the Baptist in jail. And then, at an opportune time, the woman who had been offended by this put her finger on John the Baptist because her daughter had done this really cool dance for Herod. And Herod said, I'll give you whatever you want. And she asked her mama, she said, Mama, what do you want? And in her reviling hatred 
for John the Baptist, she said, bring me his head. So because John the Baptist spoke out about a moral issue of adultery where someone was marrying an in-law, he got focused on with laser beam focus. He got rejected, he got imprisoned, and he got killed. So what happens is, is when we are going to, to care for the flock and confront sin, It's going to get personal. And I wish we could avoid that. But we can't. And so, Paul has a rejected visit. He sends this tearful letter. The tearful letter, if you want a reference to it, it is um, referenced uh, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter... 7, verse 8. So if you want to kind of mark where that is, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. It's also um, mentioned again as well in chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. All right, where are we going with this, Bart? (laughs) Okay, so let's get back on. Paul sees the sin in the church and knows it will destroy the church. He sees it. He said, we've got to deal with this. He makes the move to deal with it, writes pre-first Corinthians. Then it's not dealt with. He writes first Corinthians. Then it's not dealt with. So he says, let me stop by and just talk to him about it and kind of encourage him to follow through. He arrives and they turn against him. They attack his appearance. They attack his speech. They attack his apostleship. And they basically send him packing. And Paul goes away brokenhearted and has to regroup, and sits down and says, I can't let that be. So then he writes what's called the tearful letter, which we don't have, which would be 3 Corinthians, I guess. And he writes that letter, and it's very powerful. And that letter is so powerful that it actually jolts the congregation into repentance. And that's what you get in 2 Corinthians 7. So join me there. I know it's all over the place. We're going to clean it up in a second. Hang with me. So when Paul writes this letter, the tearful letter, it lands and God, by the Holy Spirit, convicts the general congregation, not every person, but the general congregation. The general congregation come together in consensus and they say, we can't put up with revilers and we can't put up with immoral people who are unrepentant because this is a picture of salvation and we are concerned for their souls and we're concerned for the church and the idea that it might spread. So we need to do something about it. So they eject the guy. They put him out and they call out the revilers too. And so Paul... Doesn't know about it yet. He sends Timothy. So, I mean, Titus. So, let's go to that. Titus goes and makes a visit. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, pick up there. All right, all this has happened. Paul's been rejected. Three letters. And he finally says, hey, Titus, I got word that the church responded to my last letter by repenting as a congregation. And then by calling the individuals, and particularly the immoral guy, into repentance, the guy didn't repent and they put him out. And he said, I got that through some news. Titus, will you go check on that? 
So Titus goes. And so that's what's going on in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. For even when we came into Macedonia, verse 5, our flesh had no rest. Why? Because Paul was burdened for the church. He said, we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. That line is used in the song Amazing Grace. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by the coming of Titus, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. When Paul sent that tearful letter, the church received it, and it broke their hearts. And the general congregation, the majority, repented together, And said, we're wrong to have rejected Paul. He's the one who brought salvation to us. And the good news. And we're not going to be a part of this reviling and a part of this immorality. We're going to deal with it. And they did. And in dealing with it, they punted the guy out of the church. uh, Called out the other folks to repentance. And so Titus finds out and he comes back and tells Paul. And Paul says, Thank God. He's so happy. He says, oh, this is great. So now he's writing about his happiness and read with me in verse uh, 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now, how could somebody say that? Well, you go to a mother who is in labor and she says to you, I think I might be regretting my decision at this point. But then after the baby's born, she's holding him. She says, I don't really regret it. But when she was in the middle of labor and the labor pains were on, you've heard the Bill Cosby version of that, where his wife stands up in the stirrups and says, I want morphine! There's this moment that anytime anything is painful, that we stop and we say, did I do the wrong thing here? I kind of regret my decision. But then afterwards, when the fruit of it is born, then good things come. So Paul was saying, I did regret it when I first wrote it. And it went into the church and I knew it was going to cause some sorrow. I knew it was going to cause some pain. But then when repentance came, he says, oh, wow, this is great. They repented. So that's why he seems confused here. He's not confused at all. He says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. My brothers and sisters, listen carefully. We have to love people enough to cause them the sorrow of confrontation in unrepented sin. We have to love them that much. And we have to love them enough that in that confrontation, knowing that in the heat of the moment, we may regret that we even bothered to do it. Because it it may just blow up in our face. It may get nasty and personal. It may cause us more pain than them. It may cause all kinds of problems. But in love, we do it because we're dealing with someone's soul and the possibility that they lack salvation and the possibility that they will influence others unto damnation. And so we have to do this. And so, Paul says, I regretted it, but I don't regret it. Because it did cause you sorrow, and that hurt me. 
But it was what kind of sorrow? Look at what he says here. Verse nine, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to God. God will hurt you, but he will never harm you. Now, that's a quote straight out of the revival services that was one of my great takeaways from Greg. God will hurt you, but he will never harm you. There is a difference. He says, God caused you sorrow. Look in verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret, leading to what? What does it say? Salvation. It's the confirmation. When you are confronted about your unrepentant sin and you repent, it is the confirmation of your salvation. But when you rebuff it, it may be the confirmation of your damnation. And so Paul knew that they had confronted the guy. Well, I'm hoping that you're sitting there going, What happened to the guy? What happened to the guy? Got all this story built around this one guy in chapter 5. We're talking about him now. What happened to Well, that's the glorious truth. Look in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Look at what happens here. Pick up in chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. Watch what happens. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to everybody. Sufficient for such a one. Look at this. Read it. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. What's the punishment? They put him out. The church got together and said, dude, if you don't repent, you're out of here. He said, I ain't repenting. They said, you're out of here. They called out the revilers at the same time and said, you are not going to sow seeds here. And so the guys put out of the church, the revilers are confronted, and they'll be put out if they don't get settled down. And so what happens is, is the guys ejected from the church. You say, well, is that the end of the story? No. Here's the glory. It says, look at what happens. He says in verse 7, after the punishment, he says in verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What happened when he got punted? He repented. They put him out, and he went home, and he started thinking about it. That's when Paul says, I'm turning him over to Satan. What does it mean to turn him over to Satan? Well, in Paul's view of, of, of church is there's only two realms. You're either in Christ or you're in Satan. Jesus kind of helped us with that. When he was talking with the Pharisees who rejected him, he said, you guys are doing the will of your father. They said, our father's Abraham. And he said, no, your father's the devil. And so there's only two realms. You're either answering to your spiritual daddy, Satan, or you're answering to your spiritual daddy, Jesus. There's not any others. And so when Paul puts him out of the church, he says, I'm going to send you out there with your daddy. I'm going to turn you over. That's who you want to serve? Here you go. Go. He's awakened by the confrontation, by the ejection. And he comes back and he knocks on the church door. They open the door and they say, 
It's Him. What do we do? Paul said, let Him back in. If He comes repenting of His sin, don't just let Him back in. Throw your arms around Him like the dad did in the prodigal son story. And say, thank God you're home. You see, they finally did it. And Paul says, he says, reaffirm your love for Him. You should rather forgive and comfort Him. Lest... Somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love for Him. And so what's happening here? Go ahead, Robin. When 2 Corinthians is written, it's written because it all got settled. Because they obeyed the Word of God. The churches have decisions to make that pass on so, so let's go to the outline. I need to give you two more things and I'm out of time, but I think I can get it. Letter B, a holy consciousness. This is the second part of the recipe. A thorough cleansing. That means our hearts and our church. We've got to deal with stuff. Second, a holy consciousness. That means there has to be an awareness of why we ought to be clean. Several years ago, when we were ministering in Ecuador, we, um, we, we experienced a tragedy that was heartbreaking. In one family, three children died from hepatitis. Not all at the same time. It went bam, and a little while bam, and a little while bam. And the Satchula didn't understand it. You see, they had two problems. First, they lacked the water to clean themselves and their dishes and the area that they used the restroom. And so there was transference between those. Don't want to tell too much, but you get in the picture. And they lacked the understanding that that's where the bug was coming from. It was coming from the uncleanness that was being passed through the bodies and passed on to each other. And they lacked the water to clean. And they lacked the understanding so they would be conscious of what they were supposed to be doing. Now, what happens here is that if we leave the stuff in the church, the leaven, it's going to be passed into the mouths and hearts of people that we raise up in our church. And it will infect them and it may destroy their souls. So the idea of spiritual uncleanness being passed through this leaven is something that Paul says is in the bread that you are, that you serve each other, that you eat. And you've got to do something about this. You've got to have something to wash with and a consciousness. In other words, cleansing and consciousness. What do we wash with? Well, Jesus tells us. He says in Chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, that Jesus washes the church by the water of His Word. That's what I'm doing today. I'm bathing you. I'm scrubbing you. I'm even washing behind your ears. And I'm taking God's Word and I'm lathering you up. Because Jesus sent me as your shepherd to wash you with the water of the Word every time I'm with you. And then when you sit down and you have your quiet time, you bathe yourself. And when you go to Sunday school, your Sunday school teacher helps bathe you. Because Jesus is washing 
us with the water of His Word when we gather and preach and teach and learn and when we are at home and we're having our quiet time. Jesus is washing us and through that washing, giving us a consciousness. And the, the illustration that's in Ephesians 5 is that it's like a bride's dress. Now, I love seeing brides as they come in the door. I'll never forget when Myra came in and Wes was standing here, and, and it was just a great day, and I'm standing up here, and the door opens, and Myra steps in, and literally Wes went, it just about knocked him down. She was so pretty, and so pure, and so adorned. And she had a great deal of consciousness about what she was wearing. You see, when a bride puts her dress on, she doesn't go over to the swamp and go fishing. She is aware of it. When you buy a new car, where do you park it? I used to have a Volkswagen Beetle. And I'm telling you, I'd put Crisco on the fenders and park it anywhere. If I could get it in there, I'd put it in there. And then I bought my first ever new car, a Mazda 626. I'd park it so far out in the parking lot, I'd need a GPS to find it. Why? Because I had an awareness that it needed to be treated different than that old raggedy bug I had. Now listen, that holy consciousness means that you are a bride wearing a dress adorned to meet Jesus. And that holy consciousness should be at the individual level to stay clean. And it should be at the corporate level to stay clean. That should be what's happening. Finally, the right contents. The contents, and, and, and here they are. Paul just calls them. They are threefold. The first one is sincerity. The second one is truth. And the third one is love. Illustration time. Close with this. Okay. Sincerity, truth, and love. Sincerity means no fakery. Truth means God's Word. And love means the condition under which we operate our sincerity and our truth. Now hear this. Let's imagine you've got a daughter. And, uh, or you've got a son. And, uh, and they start hurting a little bit right here. Just a little pain. They're maybe seven years old, they come to you. A little pain. And they, they, they say, my side's really hurting. And so, you know, the first thing, you go out and you get the gas X or whatever, Simethicone, whatever. Try, ah, just a little something going on. You, you know, seven hot dogs or something. So you're trying to work through that. And, but they come back and they say, no, it's still hurting. And then you start saying, you know, what's going on with you? Have you been feeling bad? No, just... And then you notice they're a little warm on the forehead, and you think, hmm. And so the pain starts increasing a little bit, starts increasing a little bit, and you say, well, we need to, we need to check them out. So finally you, you pack up and you head to the emergency room. It's late, and the doctor's not open. You head to the emergency room, you get there, and they check your child in, and they do a little uh, check on their temperature, and they check some other things. And finally they go in, you do a little CAT scan or an MRI, and come back and say, look, your child has an inflamed appendix. It's... It's really close to uh, it's really close to bursting, and uh, and you say, oh wow, they're, in, they're 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 what's what's going on? What, what should I do? Well, they're in danger. Really, yeah, they're in danger right now. We need to operate right now. Well, what are you going to do? So, well, we're going to sedate them. We're going to put them under, and then we're going to we're going to make an incision. It's about four or five inches long because it's so inflamed. We're not going to be able to do it the way that we'd like to with this little robot thing, arthroscopy. We got to go in and we got to get to that thing because it's looking pretty bad and it could rupture soon. And you're sitting there as a parent, and you say, "No, I don't think so." And the doctor says, "Excuse me," he says, "I don't think so. I don't want to put my child through the pain 
of, of, take, get, of getting a needle in their arm to put them under. And I don't want to put them through the pain of, of an incision and the recovery. I'm telling you, Doc, I just don't want to put them through that. And so we're just going to take them home. Now, what would you call that parent? I heard crazy. What else? Stupid, idiot. We got a lot of words we would apply here, right? Wouldn't we? We say they've lost their mind. Now listen, you have a Christian brother and deep in his heart, you have a Christian sister and deep in her heart, there is one of these sins unrepentantly going on. And at some point, it's going to burst. And it may be evidence that they are a lost person and that they may go to hell. And you say, well, I don't want to cause them any discomfort. You're just like that crazy parent. You are just like them. And you cannot call what you're doing love. To leave a brother or a sister or any human being in their sin is never an act of love. It is hate. Basically, what you're saying is, I love myself so much that I don't want any discomfort in my life. So I'm just going to leave them be. And they may be marching directly to the pits of hell while you stand by comfortably ignoring their sin. And so we have to make decisions that are not based on our personal comfort, but are premised on God's Word, that these kind of things can be evidence that a person is on their way to hell. And that we love them enough to put them in the discomfort of surgery as a friend, as a church member, as a leader, as a parent, as a sibling, to love them enough to go and look them in the eye and say, we need to talk. And in the love that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, I wrote you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I especially have for you. When Laurel was about three years old, four years old, we discovered that she had a hernia, pretty serious hernia. I didn't tell Laurel I was going to tell this. And so that hernia, when we noticed it, we took her in and they looked at it and they said, we got to do something with it. I love my kids. And one of the hardest days that I can ever remember is getting into that ward, that surgical ward. And Laurel's laying on that bed and Sherry's with me and, and they're about to take her and they're about to stick a needle in her and they're about to put her under and intubate her and they're about to cut open her body and remove our, and fix this problem and sew it back up. And I can remember the pain of watching that cart 
go out of my sight and, and out of my charge and out of my control and letting her go into something that I knew was going to hurt her. But I had to make that decision because something being left untended was going to hurt her worse. And you and I need to consider the state of our brothers and sisters in the church. And we need to wonder together about their soul. And we need to be led by the Spirit of God to go and to sit down and to have a 1 Corinthians chapter 6 conversation with them to say, my brother, my sister, I don't want you to be deceived. These things are evidences of a lack of salvation and I see this unrepentantly in your life. And I need you to explain to me what you're going to do about it. Because I'm worried about your soul. And I love you. So I want to invite you to something. The first thing I want to do is I want to invite you to Jesus. Because you may be here and you're a reviler or you're any of those other list of idolater, immoral, whatever, and you're here and you are unrepentantly engaged in that and you know because the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. And you're not even certain about your salvation, but you just know you just got to get things right. I'm inviting you to Jesus. Whether you're already saved or if it's evidence that you're not saved, I'm inviting you to clean house in your own soul. Deal with it. With Jesus. And to know as Daniel sang this why. Is because he loves you. He died for you. He was raised from the dead. And he wants to wash you clean today. He wants to give you a new start today. So I want to invite you. Others of you, you know you're saved, but you've been slipping into some stuff. You're certain about it, and God's been working on you, and you found yourself engaged in these things, and you are repenting, but you need help, you need accountability. Go to a brother or sister today, come to a staff member, come down and kneel, whatever it is to settle that today, because we need to have a holy cleansing, a holy consciousness, and holy contents to go out into this world and to evangelize them with this great news of Jesus. So I'm inviting. Would you stand? Would you come?